The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with all of you on this beautiful Lord's Day. Um, and it's a privilege to get to open up God's Word for us. Um, we're going to be continuing in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8. And uh, <clears throat> last week, in verses 18 through 25, um, we were reminded, uh, if you remember, we were reminded that we live in a fallen world, weren't we? And because we live in this broken, follow, fallen world, Groaning is the right response. And so we live in a world that groans for release. The, the, the creation itself groans in birth pangs for release from bondage to decay. And we ourselves groan inwardly for release from sin and wickedness and suffering. We groan, and we groan rightly, and yet we were also reminded that we don't simply groan, do we? We were reminded that because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, that we have been promised a glorious inheritance, we hope, we live with hope. We live with the hope for reversal, for renewal. We live with the hope of a glory that will far surpass any groanings that we experience even now. And this message of hope is and was a beautiful thing to hear. And yet, this message that we heard, it highlights a tension that we live with. We live in tension. You see, we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. We live in the tension between the glory that has already been, that has already begun in our reception of the Holy Spirit, but yet isn't fully realized in the lives that we live today. And as we live with this tension, each and every one of us, I think, can relate to the fact that living in this tension provides an environment for our weaknesses to get exploited to be exposed. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this tension. He picks up on this tension and he expands on it. And he highlights specific weaknesses that we deal with as we wait eagerly and patiently for the glory that is to be revealed. And he writes us a word of encouragement in verses 26 through 30. So let's go ahead and read that. Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. The Apostle Paul says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow before you, creator of heaven and earth, you who see and know all things. You know the end from the beginning. You are the Alpha and the Omega. We bow before you in praise and worship. Father, we ask this morning that you will open our eyes and ears to the message that you have for us through the Apostle Paul. May these words sink deeply within us. Encourage us as we live in this broken world, longing for the glorious day when you will return. Oh, Father, may that be so. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, some of you... Uh, might have had the joyous experience of reading Dante's Inferno. Uh, Some of you uh, might have done that. I hope you have. I see Esther Knight out there. Yes, a big fan. Um, If you have read Dante's Inferno, then you might remember that as Dante is being led initially by Virgil, he comes to the gates of hell right at the beginning. And atop the gates of hell are inscribed these words, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It's a dreadful warning. Abandon all hope. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, he once said, Living without hope is no longer living. Hope is necessary. And that's why it's only with fear and a a little bit of nudging by Virgil that Dante gets the courage enough to walk through those gates and embark on his journey. But friends, I want you to think about those words for a moment. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Have you ever felt like abandoning all hope? At the turn of the century, the 19th century, there was a lawyer living with his wife and four daughters in Chicago. And this man, he suffered unbelievable hardship. In the great Chicago fire in 1871, he lost most of his fortune. He lost his law firm. And in order to experience some much-needed refreshment, spiritual encouragement. He sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him to England to meet up with friends. But in the middle of the night, their ship was struck by another ship, and all four of his daughters perished in the ocean. His wife alone survived, and when she reached the shore, she sent him a telegram that said, saved alone, what shall I do? Friends, can you imagine 
Can you imagine such loss? Have you experienced the type of pain he must have, he must have gone through? What do we do in moments like these? It's a question I think that resonates with us or will resonate with us, each, each of us, at some point in our lives. You see, the sufferings of this present life, they can be overwhelming. And, and on top of the fact that they can be overwhelming, because you and I are weak, finite, sinful creatures prone to wander, when we experience hardship like this, we can be tempted to throw in the towel and abandon the hope of glory that's meant to sustain us. And friends, it's with these moments in mind, especially when we're grappling to stay afloat and hold on to our dearly loved hope in the Lord and the glory that is to come, it's with these moments in mind especially that Paul writes these words of encouragement in verses 26 through 30. And I think he's got two main things that he wants us to see. And the first comes in verses 26 through 27. He wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And in verses 28 through 30, he wants us to know that our loving God is unstoppably at work on our behalf. So let's look at each of those in turn. In verse 26, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Now, why would it be important for him at this point in his letter to tell us that the Holy Spirit is praying for us? He hasn't been talking about prayer. Well, he tells us right away. Look at the verse. He tells us it's because of our weakness. But it's not just weakness in general. It's weakness in prayer. We simply don't know what to pray. It's not that we don't know how to pray. It's that we don't know what to pray as we ought. And I think it's important for us to keep the context in mind. You see, Paul's addressing the weakness we experience in prayer, especially in those deep moments of suffering. Remember last, last week's passage, the groaning that was repeated. And in these moments of suffering, we oftentimes experience two things. On the one hand, we can become paralyzed in prayer. We simply don't know what to pray and therefore we don't pray. We can experience a sort of prayer paralysis. I know that some of us recently have experienced the loss of dearly loved ones. I know that some of us have received difficult diagnoses. diagnoses. We're living with chronic illness and disease. I know some of us have suffered job loss, uncertainty about how the Lord will provide in the future. I know that many of us are dealing with relational sadness and tension with children, with spouses, with friends. What do we pray for in these circumstances? Do we pray for release? 
Maybe that's what the Lord has for us. Release from the burden. Do we pray for that? Or do we recognize that God's design for us is to travel this painful road? And do we therefore pray for strength and endurance to bear up in the midst of the burden? Oftentimes we don't know what to pray, so we don't pray. On the other hand, sometimes the road forward is quite clear to us. We think we know what we ought to pray, and so we pray. But we don't pray in accordance with the will of the Lord. We don't pray as we ought. The Apostle Paul experienced this. In 2 Corinthians 12, you you might remember that he talks about a thorn in his flesh that had been given to him. And he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove this thorn from his side. But he soon came to realize that God's will for him was not to remove that burden. And he had to adjust his expectations. He had to become content with Jesus' response. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Friends, can you relate to this weakness in prayer? Have you experienced it? As Paul goes on in this, ver- in this passage, he wants to encourage you here. You see, he wants you to know that in your weakness, God has not abandoned you. Instead, the Spirit himself is praying for you. As he says, uh, as he says the Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Now that phrase, groanings with too deep for words, that's an odd phrase, don't you think? It literally means unspoken words. That's what it literally means. And because some people take this, uh, and and maybe even here, take this uh, in this way, I think it's worth clarifying. I don't think Paul is talking about speaking in tongues. I don't think that's what he has in view here. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 make it clear to us that speaking in tongues, this phenomenon is audible. Tongues were a gift to to a select group. They were in the context of praise and worship and they were subject to the interpretation of men. Here, however, the groanings of the spirit that are too deep for words, they're unspoken. That's literally what it means. They're experienced in times of suffering, in our weakness. They are, a prom- they are the promised experience to all believers And as we'll see in a moment, they are subject to the interpretation of God himself. So what Paul's describing, what he's doing in describing the Spirit's intercession as groanings, he's picking up on that metaphor of groaning that we saw last week. Remember, in verses 18 through 25, we heard that because of the fallen nature of the world, the creation groans for release. We groan inwardly. For the redemption of our bodies. Paul is picking up on that metaphor of groaning and he's applying it to the prayer life of the Spirit. And what he's describing here is the indwelling Spirit's profound help that he provides for us as he enters into our groaning, 
He enters into our pain with his own groaning as he presents the hidden and the confused and the misguided longings of our hearts that we so often struggle to articulate to the Lord. This is why many commentators have described the Spirit's groaning as his own prayer language of intercession. I especially like what Michael Bird says. He says these groanings are the Spirit's imperceptible murmurings into our imperfect hearts to animate them in God-glorifying prayer. And you know, although these groanings of the Spirit, they're imperceptible to us, remembering that He is groaning on our behalf, friends, this should be an incredible source of comfort to us. And it's not only because we recognize that He's entering into our suffering and He's sympathizing with us, but especially because, as Paul tells us, In the Spirit's groaning, something beautiful and astounding is happening. Listen again to what he says in verse 27. He says, as the Spirit groans, he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, in the weakness of our prayers... Divine communication, perfect divine interpretation concerning us and for our benefit is taking place. The hidden recesses of our hearts, our perplexed or misguided longings, all of these things are laid bare before the searcher of hearts. The one who alone discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. They are laid bare before our Heavenly Father. And the Spirit who has taken up residence within us, whose mind the Father knows, He lovingly and sympathetically communicates these to the Father in perfect harmony with the Father's intentions for us. Friends, is there anything more encouraging to hear in the midst of our own struggles with prayer. You see, Paul wants us to know that any paralysis or misguidedness we might experience in prayer, this weakness doesn't make prayer ineffective. After all, the Spirit itself is praying for us, and the Spirit, unlike us, doesn't pray in ignorance. The Spirit doesn't pray in weakness. The Spirit prays in accordance with the the will of God. And friends, God always, always answers prayers prayed in accordance with His will. Yes. Think about that. What a comfort. I think too recognizing our weakness in prayer, recognizing that God's the one who knows the end from the beginning. We, as Paul says, we only see in a mirror dimly. Recognizing this, it encourages us to think that sometimes, you know, it's okay to draw near to the Lord in silence and simply to lay our burdens before Him in silence 
And in that sense, Paul's message here is an invitation for us to be still, as the psalmist says, and know that God is God and to trust that his spirit is prayerfully upholding us in our weakness. Brothers and sisters, do you know the Holy Spirit is praying for you, even now, and that his prayers for you are always being answered? Well, as Paul reflects on on the certain help the Spirit provides us in our weakness as he prays for us, it leads him to develop in verses 28 through 30 the second main thing I think he wants us to hear, and that's this. Our loving God is unstoppably at work on our behalf. Look at verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, this has got to be one of the most encouraging verses in all of scripture, right? And there are a few things that I think immediately stand out. And the first is this. This promise is to believers, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This isn't just some kind of Pollyanna optimism. It's rooted in belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. This promise is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The second thing that stands out is he says, God uses all things. He works all things for good. And we'll get to what the good is in a moment. But what Paul has in mind here is the idea that God superintends everything. Every event you experience, everything, especially the suffering. Remember the context that we're dealing with. The sufferings of the present time that cause us to groan inwardly for for the redemption of our bodies. He has that in mind. He also has in mind that litany of of tragedies that we'll hear about next week when we get to verse 35. Tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and even death. And what he's saying here is that God uses all things, blessings and trials, for the good, for the benefit of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the third thing that stands out to me is he says, we know. Did you catch that? And we know that God does these things. That stands out to me. You see, it's hard for us to know this very thing that Paul says we know so often, isn't it? It doesn't always feel or look like God is working or desiring our good, does it? After all the suffering we experience, whether it's just constant health problems, job loss, relational distress, even persecution for our beliefs, when we experience these things, these trials, they tend to rise up against us. And it's almost like they seek to destroy the hope we have in the good purposes God says he has for us. I think this is something that we can all relate to. You know, the book of Job, in the book of Job, we hear that Job himself early on dealt with this very thing. 
amidst the loss of everything that he experienced. His family, his wealth, his health, his reputation. He said this in Job 7, 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Job experienced this. Friends, do you know that God is working all things for your good? Or is the hope you have in the goodness of God, the goodness he has towards you, is it languishing? The Apostle Paul was convinced of the goodness of God. However inscrutable it might appear, he Seventeen and eighteen, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. To explain in greater depth these purposes. And he gives us a. Isn't it? The 16th century theologian William Perkins, he called this the golden chain. A chain forged by God, a chain that is unbreakable. And entire sermons could be preached on just one element of each of these. In the remaining moments we have, I just want to touch on them briefly. Brothers and sisters, listen to what your heavenly Father has done for you. He has foreknown you. The idea here isn't this idea that God is somehow looking down some ethereal corridor of time. That's not the point. Paul's picking up on the common usage of this in the Old Testament. The idea behind this foreknowing is that he has loved you. That he has set his covenant love upon you. He has chosen you. He has consecrated you. He has appointed you. Jeremiah 1.5, when Jeremiah uh, talks about his own calling, he says, the Lord says this in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Those verbs, know, consecrate, and appoint, they're all working together. And friends, that's what Paul is saying to you here. The Lord has foreknown you. But he's not just foreknown you. He's predestined you. Because he's set his covenantal love on you, he's charted a course for you. And Paul tells us specifically what that course is. He tells us in the verse that he has predestined that you might become conformed to the image of his son Jesus and that Jesus himself might be the firstborn among many brothers. That conformity to Jesus, what he has in mind there is that we would begin to act and to emulate and to experience the things of Jesus. 
And since Jesus was the suffering Messiah, he is the Lion of Judah, but the Lamb slain. Brothers and sisters, our conformity to Christ involves not just glory, but suffering. And Paul captures this well when he says in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, he said that he counted everything rubbish, that he may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and that he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead, suffering and glory in conformity to Christ. Paul also says that we have been predestined that Jesus himself might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. And this highlights beautifully God's intention from the beginning to create a family with his own son as the head. In other words, Paul has in mind your adoption. Brothers and sisters, you have been foreknown. You have been predestined. And these two things, these foreknowing and predestining, these are God's loving works that have happened in time before time. But then Paul goes on and he adds what the Lord has done for us in history, in our own lives. And he says this, God has called you. He has in mind this effectual call. Not just the blanket gospel going forth, but as it pertains to you and how he called you and how you responded to the Lord's call through the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, Paul says to the Thessalonians that they had been called through the gospel. This calling that he says, uh, that he refers to here is the Lord's irresistible summoning of you and maybe the best way to think about this is to think again on the death of Lazarus when Jesus stood before the empty tomb he stood before that tomb and he simply said Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came forth the Lord has called you but he's not just called you he's justified you as he's called you, he's also justified you. Brothers and sisters, what that means, what's that referring, what that's referring to is the Lord's irrevocable. That he has irrevocably set you in right relationship with himself. You, were, you are now justified. You were a sinner. And now you're called a friend. The Apostle Paul started chapter 8 even. By saying this in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been justified. And as Paul brings this incredible golden chain, the, the sequence to a climactic close, he ties them together with the theme that he began this chapter. Um, even last week, he ties it together with the theme of glory. And notice that this element too is in the past tense. Did you catch that? He has glorified those whom he loves and are called according to his purpose. And on, one hand, this, on the one hand, this is kind of odd. Does it strike you as odd? After all, the hope of glory, as we saw last week, is something that we're waiting patiently and eagerly for, right? Right? 
It's odd, too, because our experience of glory isn't just a future reality. We're experiencing it even now. Remember last week we were reminded that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul makes this present experience of glory especially clear in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So why does he put it in the past tense? He has glorified you. I think the idea behind this is that Paul is so certain of the totality of glory that God intends for us, both now as we progressively become more and more like the Savior and in the redemption of our bodies. He's so certain of it that he writes as if it's already happened. And he says, he has glorified you. It reminds me of what he says in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you see that the Lord God Almighty has been and is even now lovingly at work on your behalf? That he uses everything, that he uses all things, both the blessings and the trials that we face for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Paul tells us here, he tells you that you have been foreknown, that you have been predestined, that you have been called, that you have been justified, and that you have been glorified. And he wants you to remember these things and to find comfort in them. Well, some of you have probably uh, already figured out that the lawyer that I was speaking about from Chicago in the beginning, that was Horatio Spafford, the author of the beloved hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You remember how the first stanza goes? When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Friends, how on earth was he able to write these words? Why didn't he abandon hope? Is it not because he was convinced of the ultimate goodness of his heavenly father? Is it not because he had put his hope not in the ever-changing circumstances of the painful life we live in this broken world, but in the unbreakable love and purposes of his savior? His hope was rooted in Jesus. And Michael Bird says that this hope, the hope that we find in Jesus, Listen to this. This hope expiates the misery of life. It is currency in the land of melancholy. It is grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all our fears. 
It is the physician of a terrified soul. Friends, do you have this hope? Do you have this hope? The Apostle Paul wants to encourage you today in the midst of your weakness. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in the glorious help the Lord provides us in, his, in our weakness. Know that the Spirit is praying for you and that God is lovingly working on your behalf. He's working all things for your good. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, uh, we bow before you and we uh, bask in the amazing love that you have shown us. What goodness we experience by your hand. Well, Father, we ask that you will cause these words to sink deep within us. Encourage us, Lord, this week. Cause us to trust you. Cause us to know that the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, is lifting us up in prayer. We ask all things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.